0: Listener production. Handling to see what town or
1: suburb?
2: This is Jason Morrison, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel at Double Bay. The scene of a major international story inside the building on the fifth floor. A man's body was found in the doorway of one of the suites. A hotel maid made the discovery and screamed out for help. Security came and the officers tried to revive the man, but he'd been dead for some time. But it is the identity of this man. He's an international music figure, a genuine star.
3: In Excess are one of Australia's most successful, most influential and most enduring musical exports. They've sold over 80 million albums and headlined at some of the most iconic music stadiums across the globe. This year is 25 years since the passing of an icon. The international music industry is in
0: shock with the death of rock star Michael Hutchins. The body of the INXS lead singer was discovered in a Sydney hotel room late this morning. Police won't confirm the cause
3: of death. He was just 37 years old. On November 22, 1997, the world lost one of the most charismatic performers of all time, when In Excess frontman Michael Hutchins passed away in mysterious circumstances.
4: Apparently, had just been to dinner with family the night before in Double Bay, then dead. None of it made sense. You know, Australia's great rock god, Michael Hutchins, was dead.
3: In Excess member Kirk Pengilly recalls that devastating day.
5: Yes, we were all together when we found out, which was fantastic, but then um, our advisors, you know, kind of suggested that we all just sort of bunker down for, you know, maybe a week or whatever just to sort of avoid kind of doing media stuff and all that sort of thing.
3: And John Farris. So I went home and I
6: ordered a kind of like a a guard guy just to stand at my gate for a week while I just kind of sat in a room and and just, you know, just stared out the window in, in complete shock.
3: In this special, you'll hear from the band, their friends and other music legends about the legacy of In Excess and the impact of Australia's most loved rock star, Michael Hutchins, 25 years after his passing.
7: I still think In Excess is one of the most original bands still to this day. I don't hear anybody really that compares.
0: He was one of the greatest performers in a rock band ever. He was um, really compelling to watch live. He was... You know, he, he just became very serpent-like and, and commanding of a crowd without even trying. You, you know, it was just in him.
4: Now he was the new Jim Morrison, for God's sake. But better, you know, he had a bigger audience.
0: I was devastated. I, um, I literally, look, I'm actually getting a bit choked up thinking about it because it was that, that powerful for me.
3: You'll hear the story of the band's unique beginnings, their world-conquering highs and their devastating lows. He didn't want a lot of people to know about the loss of smell and taste and also the kind of pain that he was in. And for the first time, you'll hear about the private pact that bonded in excess together and the secret master plan that almost changed rock history.
6: Look, we all wanted it to be a girl. We loaded it with girls. It was 15 contestants. It was eight girls and seven guys, Okay, We already had the name of the album called Switch. It was meant to be Switch to a Girl. I mean, the whole thing was all set up perfectly. she wasn't there
3: this is the story of michael hutchins and in excess a story of life loss and legacy a band of brothers faced with the unthinkable and the story from those that were there this is behind the hits michael hutchins in excess This is a big year for some significant In Excess anniversaries. It's 40 years since their iconic album, Shabu Shabar, and 35 years since the band's most successful album, Kick, with its anthems like New Sensation and Never Tear Us Apart, and 45 years since they played their first gig. In Excess music is still a constant presence in our lives. Their compilation, The Very Best, has spent a decade in the ARIA chart, where it is still rubbing shoulders with the superstars of today. They've been covered by Bruce Springsteen, Vance Joy and The Killers, referenced in a song by Dua Lipa and influenced just about every rock band on the planet. In Excess seems to be equally as popular today as the day they played their last live show, being introduced to new generations with their songs used in hit TV shows from Black Mirror to Euphoria their trademark and timeless mix of rock, funk and dance is now viewed as groundbreaking. The In Excess story starts in Sydney in the mid 70s when Andrew Farris took a new student being bullied at his school under his wing. It was Michael Hutchence and the pair would make history as songwriting partners. Here's Michael.
4: I was having a little bit of trouble on my first day at school. I was sort of ended up in some fight with some kids and he, he came over. And um, so broke it all up and said, Hi, I'm Andrew.
3: However, Australia's most successful rock front man of all time was initially a reluctant singer, as Andrew Farris remembers.
1: When we met each other, he never played an instrument. In fact, during In Excess's entire career, he never played instruments. His instrument was his voice and an amazing live stage entertainer and an incredible singer. But when I met him, he didn't play instruments, whereas all my little school buddies, you know, most of us could play an instrument. And so, I hadn't yet thought that Michael would do anything except we used to talk about lyrics a lot together and he was always really clever at prose. We were just sitting there one day, I think in his mum's house, and I said to him, why don't you try singing, you know? And he sort of looked at me and thought, singing? And I said, yeah, just have a go.
3: Andrew convinced Michael to join his band Dr Dolphin, who featured future Excess member Gary Beers on bass. Andrew's older brother Tim had already been in a duo with guitarist and future sax hero Kirk Pengilly, but in 1977 the two bands would unite. Here's the late Michael Hutchence on his recollection of the time.
4: Andrew did say, yeah, I, you should be a singer. You know, nah, nah, no, I don't do that, you know. I was in a motorcycle and things so I was a real boy. And um, and he gave me a microphone and I started singing in a garage. I don't know what the hell I was singing, some rubbish, and we, we were trying out drummers or something, and we had one drummer kept and flipping out, and that's how we eventually got John. You know, hey, what about your kid brother? Oh, him.
3: That kid Farris brother John joined as a teenager with the band now logically christened The Farris Brothers. They played their first show on August 16, 1977. Coincidentally, Tim Ferris's 20th birthday and also the day Elvis Presley died.
6: It was just bizarre that the brothers had never really played in the same band before, ever. We were just doing our own thing, so I was 16, pretty young. (laughs) I was always around people who were eight, ten years older than me.
3: When the Farris family relocated from Sydney to Perth, the non-Farris members of the band followed them across the country, regular live work, rehearsing original songs by day, then playing covers to anyone who'd listen at night, would forge the determination that would fulfil their dream of world domination. But first, a name change. Michael Hutchins explains.
4: We called it the Ferris Brothers, you know, begrudgingly. For It, was, it didn't last very long. I think we called the Vegetables for a while too, for about a week, due um, <laughs> to the obvious reasons. I think actually Gary Morris suggested something along the lines of being inaccessible. And I think someone in a road crew suggested INXS or something. It looked good on posters anyway. You could put it on the street and you could sort of see it. But I think for a while there, when we started doing TV shows, there was an audience that knew us as, or radio, where they as in excess. And there were people going on to gigs thinking we were. Inks or INXS or something, you know. So we had two audiences for a couple of months there, I'm sure, until everybody got the idea.
3: By 1979, INXS moved back to Sydney and hired the tenacious Chris Murphy as manager. The band's longtime friend and producer, Mark Opitz, said Murphy was crucial to breaking them globally.
4: Talk about driving forces, their manager was definitely the driving force. The band, I I think, if they were managed by anybody else, they would have been a great band and they would have done really well in Australia. But Murphy, he actually said to them, we want to dominate the world. We want world domination. That's what we're after. And he said, and that's what I'm after. Are you with me? And they said, yes.
3: Their first two albums, In Excess and Underneath The Colours, showcased a diverse mix of influences with all members sharing songwriting input. Just Keep Walking became their first top 40 hit, and they worked with muso Richard Clapton for a cover of the 60s classic, the loved one, as Richard explains.
2: Their manager Chris Murphy dragged me down to a venue in Paddington in Sydney. There was nobody
1: there. This young band came out, played to nobody with this passion and, and panache that just blew me away. I went to the dressing room after they came on stage. Um, I loved their songs and we just hit it off. So I went in almost straight
4: away and did the loved one with them.
1: In Excess but,
3: were still finding their sound, experimenting with different genres.
4: We were pretty wi- you know, pretty out there at that stage. we were sort of really pushing it, see how far we could get with audiences, you know. And also, we were one of the first bands playing kind of funk music and stuff, and that was pretty tricky, you know, because Australian audiences were used to Akadaka, cultures or mino oil, and it was very heavy guitar chords and stuff like that. And we were up there with, you know, we had congas, I think, at that stage. It was um, searching for an identity basically. And, You know, pretty daggy, actually, in a lot of ways, but pretty interesting in other ways.
3: Peter Garrett of Midnight Oil says a developing in excess would often open for his band in the early 80s, with both singers already having a connection.
5: Michael's dad and my dad knew one another from back in the day. They they were sort of in the same area of business in Sydney. So we had that connection, which was an interesting one, which went back as well. But, look, once they played with us and they did a lot of shows with us and they're probably the only support act that the Oars have had where you finish the night thinking, you know what, that support act didn't need to be the opening act, they could have been the closing act, you know. And especially once they found their rhythm and they found their voice and he found his voice.
3: Their third album, Shabu Shabar, turns 40 this year. Andrew Farris was now writing songs designed to be playing in pubs like Don't Change but soon funk and dance influences took more prominence.
1: If people are curious as to see, why did excess start changing their music? It's because we, well, I and we as songwriters began to realise that it wasn't necessarily just about pleasing pub audiences in Australia, as much as we liked all that. We didn't really feel like we were the kings of the pub scene. There were other acts besides excess I think, that were the kings of the pub scene. I think we we participated very heavily in it in the early years of our life. But I think it wasn't until we started traveling internationally and touring that we suddenly began to realize we can entertain anyone anywhere in the world if we try to absorb other influences into our music.
3: Still to come, the secret financial pact that bonded in excess together.
6: That was specifically one of the smartest things that any band could ever do.
3: By 1982, In Excess were a band on the rise. For third album, Shabu Shabar, they turned to a man who was able to truly capture the power of In Excess on stage in the studio. Just like he'd done with Cold Chisel and The Angels. Here's Kirk.
5: He was the top producer in Australia at the time and um, and I think he really got the band. He really pulled out of us what we, you know, how we sounded live.
3: This man was Mark Opitz. He'd go on to produce more In Excess albums than anyone else and help them create their biggest Australian hit to date. Mark says that In Excess had learnt from Cold Chisel that becoming the biggest band in Australia then trying to conquer the US never worked. All the planets must align at once.
4: The bands that did get their courier in sync early were obviously ACDC. They just toured and toured and toured way before they became famous. Uh, and and But In Excess was another one. They could see what had gone on before.
3: Don't Change became In Excess's first gold single at home. Soon they were touring America, opening for Adam Ant and fellow Aussies Men at Work, whose lead singer Colin Hay recalls how the early in excess had all the ingredients for success.
7: We were kings of the world at that, at that particular time and they were just coming up and you could tell, um, you know, what was going to happen to them and and indeed that's exactly what did happen. <laughs>
3: for Kirk Pengilly, In Excess had no problems taking on a support role in order to get in front of huge audiences that they could charm.
5: What we did differently in America was we decided to at least spend the first year or two predominantly opening for big bands, um, or bigger bands than us, because obviously we're unknown over there and if we just did a club tour, which is what a lot of Australian bands did, but they went over there, they'd, they'd sort of, you know, do gig small gigs in places and no one knew who they were. And uh, and I think a lot of Australian bands that were quite successful here when they went and did that struggled with, well, you know, no one cares over here, so why are we doing this? But we decided to, uh, you know, to, to open for bigger bands. And the first tour was Adamant, um, which was, interesting it was college towns and uh it was crazy uh you know we we didn't really know what to expect when we went to america and of course we arrived with the start of mtv over there and uh and before we arrived the one thing was released on onto mtv the the video of it and went on high rotation you know sort of straight off off the bat um so when we got to america we were kind of getting recognized in these college towns (laughs) and it's like We love America. This is awesome.
3: Manager Chris Murphy knew Inexcess needed to be directly signed to an international label in order to be treated like a priority, and it was paying off. The late Murphy, speaking in 2014, said their ambition was no accident.
8: Part of the deal with Inexcess and I that we made was that we're going to be go for it internationally, and we'd we'd only come home uh, if we just knew. It wasn't breakable. Other than that, it was a 10-year plan, off we go.
3: In excess's 1984 album The Swing became their second gold album in America. With half a million sales and their first number one back home, Original Sin, produced by Niall Rogers, spoke about children of different races, and as Michael explains, this was problematic in some conservative parts of America.
4: We wrote on the road, you know, just on a porter studio. Funnily enough, ironically, from... From seeing Spanish kids and black kids and white kids all playing around, I remember seeing them, just little kids playing around on a, a garden, front garden somewhere, and thinking, as the years go by, are they going to be get that conditioning? What are they going to learn? Are they going to be able to still play together? You know, <laughs> um, I don't know.
3: In the mid-80s, as much as it was all going to plan, manager Chris Murphy was deliberately downplaying the band's American success, fearful of a backlash that he saw coming. Kirk Pengilly says they had no problems with their home country keeping them in check.
5: You know, at that time, there was this sort of um, all poppy kind of syndrome in Australia. And, you know, in some ways, it's kind of cool. I like the fact that if you come home and uh, everyone's like, you know, like the, the attitude of Australians is like, well, yeah, you know, you had some success, but, uh, mate, you know, you're just <laughs> you're just like me, you're just a normal guy. And it's true. And I, and I think it's, uh, it was really a, a good leveller in keeping uh, us us guys balanced, in a way, being Australian.
3: Now, here's the genius part. The secret of the band staying close friends for more than 45 years. Band manager Chris Murphy had set up a business arrangement for In Excess, which would avoid the dangerous path that saw so many bands fight and break up over money. While Andrew Farris and Michael Hutchence would start to handle most of the songwriting duties... Murphy told the band they should split their royalties to recognise all the members' input on songs to keep things harmonious. Here's John Farris exclusively talking about this for the first time publicly.
6: It was really Chris's idea. Chris had, had done a few global kind of trips when we were still sort of um, breaking Australia and he came back and he said, look, from what I can see and what I've witnessed, most bands break up. Once you're successful then everyone starts getting a little uppity about how money is is, is split and everything like that so as a foresight i recommend before anything gets too exciting for you guys that you get really clever and smart and wise about just just making everything a little bit more fair for everybody so that we can all feel that you know our families can can feel like we're all part of it and and that was one of the wisest things you know, ever done in the history of mankind. <laughs> uh, that, that was specifically one of the smartest things that any band could ever do.
3: Kirk Pangili expands on the deal that would bond in excess in business as well as music.
5: As a band, we decided with, the, with our publishing royalties, which is the songwriting royalties, that half go to the uh, the whole band, all six of us, and half goes to the writers, whoever that was, you know, predominantly Andrew and Michael. And that was because everyone contributed. You know, every everyone uh contributed parts when we were recording and, and 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 to the to the you know to the, the sound, to the music. Um and that sort of made everyone feel like they were part of it as well. They weren't just, you know, a lot of bands, I think, do split up because of the, the songwriting team versus the rest of the band. Um, we squashed that by making it fair, by having, you know, half of those publishing royalties going to the whole six of us.
3: As the band hit the top five in America with What You Need, in 1985, Andrew Farris says the success wasn't a chance to take their foot off the pedal.
1: Our manager at the time, Chris Murphy, who sadly passed away last year, a brilliant man, great manager too. He called me at home and he said, do you realize you've got a top five hit in the United States with what you need, the song? And I said, oh, "That's that's fantastic. He said, well, you should go out and party and do whatever you got to do. And I was in my 20s and I said, yeah, sure, thanks for calling. Put the phone down. And then I called Michael and I said, how do you feel about this? And he said, yeah, I feel a bit strange about it. I said, yeah, me too. And, we, and we said, well, why do we feel strange about it? And then we both realized, because we have to go and do it again. you got to go out there, you're going to have to try and do that again. And that's not easy. Okay, that, that stuff's not easy. And that's why on the next album with Kick that we had so many hits off that record is because we suddenly realized that we're going to have to, for the moment, just forget about running around on stages and things and just really seriously focus on this music for and songs for a while. And the band... God bless them. The rest of the guys in NXS on a tour bus in Germany said to us, "Why don't you and Michael write all the songs? Because you're the guys that write the hits. So why don't you do that?" And I thought that was incredibly smart of them to do that, um, because in a lot of bands where a lot of them, you know, hit a brick wall in bands is because they start competing with each other. You know, and I could I won't say which bands, but some of the biggest bands in the world have had bad endings because of that, where they they started competing with each other. And we never really did that as a band. We were really lucky like that. We played to our strengths. If someone was really good at something, we let them do that, you know, because that's what they're really good at.
3: By 1986, their biggest album, Kick, was still a year away. excess was starting to finally crack the UK market, opening for Queen at Wembley Stadium, a venue they'd famously headline themselves just a few short years later. In Excess were one of the very first Australian bands to embrace the music video, and their work has since become legendary. Their captivating on-screen presence was honed by one man.
4: Hi, my name is Richard Lowenstein. I'm a supposed filmmaker, writer, producer, director, and those In Excess guys used to call me the seventh member of the band.
3: Michael Hutchins had formed a friendship with Richard Lowenstein and explains how he quickly became a key part of In Excess.
4: He's like the seventh member of In Excess, he really is. He's really a film director and he wants to make movies and he keeps on getting waylaid by us to make videos.
3: (laughs) Lowenstein admits to getting pressure to make sure In Excess videos featured all band members, despite the camera loving Michael Hutchins.
4: I'd always get a um, phone call from Chris Murphy saying, you know... Andrew Farris's grandmother can't see anything in the rough cut you sent of her of her son. I said, Well he's got Tim Farris, isn't that enough? You know, and uh, and so there was all there was always talk about the grandmas, you know, you gotta put a bit in for the grandmas.
3: So while the grandparents were glued to countdown and the band were preparing to write and record kick, Chris Murphy had another item on his bucket list. He booked in excess to headline Australian Made, a huge outdoor touring event featuring all local talent with Jimmy Barnes, Divinals and mental as anything.
1: Street Beat and Eon FM are proud to present Australian Made, the finest collection of homegrown
4: talent ever on the one stage.
3: While homegrown festivals are now commonplace, it broke new ground back in 1986.
4: I guess originally it was sort of the brainchild of a um, manager, Chris, who has a real... Th- almost a bee in its bonnet about Australians appreciating what they do have.
3: In Excess and Jimmy Barnes recorded a cover of the Easy Beat song Good Times to perform on the tour so that both acts could appear on stage for the encore. Barnsley said it was one of the fastest recording sessions of his career.
2: We just got in there and we had a ball. We, we were in the studio for about twenty-four hours, and we we found that song, recorded it, and then we and then we wrote a B-side, "Laying Down the Law," and recorded that too, and made a film clip. All in twenty-four hours, it was absolutely berserk in there. We were going crazy. We were absolutely out of control. It was good fun. It was like, like I look back and, you know, and vaguely remember it. <laughs>
3: However, Chris Murphy noticed the first taste of a press backlash against In Excess when the media questioned why midnight oil weren't on the Australian-made bill. This lit a fire to further fuel his grand plan.
8: So that was the first time that In Excess and myself actually experienced that tall poppy. And I got to say, it riled the shit out of me. And I can remember where I was, and I think I hung up from a journalist, I read the... Uh, paper or what midnight all said and quoted and i put the phone down i still remember i was sitting and i went i'm gonna get on a plane and i ain't coming back to this asshole of a country until i saw five million records now, up until then we'd only ever sold one million which is listen like these so i just put a new target of five million well the next album was kick i came back when we sold eight million
3: Kick, released in October 1987, has now sold a huge 20 million copies, with sales increasing every single year. Need You Tonight hit number one in America, and the album gave the band three more consecutive US top tens with New Sensation, Devil Inside and Never Tear Us Apart. This was big news for any band, let alone a band from Australia. Darren Hayes, who'd later follow the path in excess created around the world with his band Savage Garden, says Kick is a perfect album with an international sound.
2: Michael Hutchence didn't seem like he was from anywhere and loved that. And uh, the sound of the band, it didn't seem contained. And I think that's one thing that you you can fall victim to as a local artist that is that you there's this imaginary glass ceiling and you think, well... I'm pretty good for an Australian, but... And I loved that in excess, just thought, you know, screw that. We're, you know, we're pretty good full stop. And, and I always related to his ambition and, and the sound, the global sound of their records.
3: When Chris Murphy played a pre-release version of the album for the band's American label, Atlantic Records, he claims he was told it contained no hits and they'd give him $1 million to go back and re-record it. The million-dollar rejection story has become an urban myth but it's one John Farris still stands by. If
6: Chris is saying that he walks in with, you know, 15-ton balls to go into uh, one of the largest corporate buildings in the world and say, hey, uh, if you don't like the, the album, stick it up your ass," Like, that's probably the best rock and roll story I've ever heard in my life. Um, so I'm going to stick with that. Because <laughs> I it's pretty damn good. And after all, we do represent what was supposed to be rock and roll and that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you you operate,
3: you know. Dorothy Carvello was working at Atlantic Records in New York when Kick conquered America.
0: I'm Dorothy Carvello. I'm an author and music industry executive and activist and also uh, was a personal friend of Michael Hutchins for 10 years. Well, Kick, I think, was an iconic. It was, it still is. It's, it was a huge record. There was nothing like it. It was like one single after another single with amazing videos. I mean, the videos that Richard Lowenstein did were just, nothing was like that in America before. There was nothing like it on MTV. And the unique thing about In Excess, as compared to the other bands on Atlantic at the time, was that. Their work ethic was amazing. At least from Michael's perspective, he was the member of a band. It wasn't the Michael Hutchins band.
3: This Awful One mentality has stayed with the band from schoolboys to superstars to the current day and proved a crucial factor in not only their success, but their happiness.
5: Yeah, in excess, definitely. You know, we were a democracy right, right from the beginning. Um, You know, like I can't. Uh, one instance, obviously, was that uh, Rolling Stone in America wanted to do a big, big article. You know, in the mid, or well, probably around Kick, I think it was, and they wanted Michael on the front cover, and and Michael was the one that said, "No, it has to be the whole band." You know, we're a band; it's not Michael Hutchinson, and the backing band. Michael
4: championed that probably more than the rest of us did.
3: Michael always believed that success was better shared.
4: With numbers, with people around you, I don't know if I could have done it by myself, you know. I I mean, definitely not having six people and each one making up for the other when one was lacking in that belief, you know. That's how we got there, really, just rolling it over and rolling it over. And it's funny because when success sort of comes, you go, yep, okay." You don't sort of jump around, yay! (laughs) You know, it's, I mean, of course, it's exciting, but just it just was there you know we didn't it didn't just happen in one single we didn't just have a hit out of a garage you know we just kept on playing and playing and that's the way we work that's how we function you know we're a real living band.
3: Coming up how Michael Hutchins went from shyness to rock god superstardom.
4: That was interesting I had to sort of gear up to walk out in front of 60,000 people or something.
3: Inexcess's work ethic on the road was the stuff of legend. They toured Kick for 16 months, doing 150 dates worldwide, including selling out Madison Square Garden in New York. Here's Michael Hutchins on the Madness of the Kick tour.
4: Things just got bigger and bigger and bigger as we went along, and you're thinking, this can't keep happening. And uh, it was a long tour. It was a year and a half. You know, and it felt like a 10 by the end of it, but it was really good. I mean... We had to deal with a lot of stuff. You have to. We get real smart about judging people and keeping a, a grasp on this thing that kept on growing and growing. Um, you know, we we changed gear about three times as far as our touring went. You know, we suddenly got into bigger and bigger places, and we ended up in Texas Stadium with seventy thousand people at the end of the American tour, and we, we were doing college as a you know, a little while ago. So that was interesting. I had to sort of gear up to walk out in front of 60,000 people or something.
3: While Michael is regarded as one of the most charismatic front men in rock, he was actually an introvert. A shy person who had to really work at the tricks needed to seduce a stadium.
4: The hardest thing, and because I'm basically not, not a natural kind of performer as far as, you know, I don't live and breathe... To, to go out on a stage it's sort of something that transforms in me when i walk out there it's the audience that do it for me i think mm-hmm. so i have to muster a lot of ego to to be honest you need to really have this sort of ego to go on the road you know and i've talked to other people about because you can be really mild-mannered and everything and you have to go out on the road and you suddenly have to deal with yeah boom you know matching all those people every night and that, that takes a lot of work you know
3: Baby Animals singer Susie DeMarkey would perform within excess after Michael's death and actually be in discussions to be his replacement. She says that Hutchins was a rare breed.
0: He was one of the greatest performers in a rock band ever. He became very serpent-like and commanding of a crowd without even trying. You know, it was just in him. And he just had something really aloof and special about him that is very appealing in a rock star sort of personality. Beautiful man. Yeah, he was really, he was just a great rock star, you know.
3: Bandmate and songwriting brother, Andrew Farris, had a front row seat to Michael's transformation.
1: He felt that when he could feel an audience's attention or electricity, is another word, he would gain energy from that. Whereas some other people might freak out, you know, and go go within himself. He wasn't like that. He would take the energy of a room and he'd work it, he'd work the energy of the room. And that takes a certain type of person to do that. Some people can't do that, even I I have to keep reminding myself, Marlene and my wife will say, Andrew, you can't close your eyes when you're singing a song on stage. And I mainly do that not because I don't want to look at the audience because I'm trying to concentrate on the song instead of looking at someone in front of me that might be distracting my attention. But I've got to learn as an entertainer now to not do that, but to do like Michael would have done and use the energy in the room, you know, and to to work with it. And I'm learning, you know, so I'm still learning. You're never too old to learn, really.
3: Close friend Jimmy Barnes knew the Michael off stage as well as on. Michael
2: was a very complex fella. He was a uh, very talented, uh, obviously. He was, he was, you know, quite quite shy in, in a lot of ways. Um, Michael, Michael was, um, uh, he. Uh, you know, I watched him sort of blossom from being a very shy frontman into being, you know, obviously you, you look at that, that Wembley footage and the best frontman in the world, you know. Uh, but he was, uh, but it was, it was complex. He was, um, you know, he cared about his art. He, um, he, he worked really hard. He, you know, he was a wild boy. He had his moments, uh, as, you know, and, and I was fortunate and fortunate enough to actually spend a lot of those times with him.
3: Future Noise Works frontman John Stevens befriended Michael in the early 80s and would later step in as a singer with in excess. He said Michael Hutchins was one of a kind.
7: He'd be a real poet, you know, he's very... I always thought he was a great singer, I thought they were great. I always thought they were great musicians, they were a great band. He led through his heart, really, cos, you know, the way he performed was just the way he... the music made him feel, he was very... He was uniquely himself, too, and, you know, as they got more successful and, you know, he got... They got bigger and bigger, you know the machine just you know it just churns you up and spits you out if you're not if you're not careful and you know you can't continue down that debauchery path you got to get off it at some point otherwise you don't survive.
3: The relentless touring was as rewarding as it was intense, as Andrew Farris recalls.
1: The thing that really a lot of people don't don't understand clearly is that when you go tour overseas, and if you do it the hard way, which is you play a different town every night for months on end, what you don't have is you don't have your own bed, you don't see any of your friends or family, you don't even see your little dog you might love. You don't see anybody but the same people over and over and over again. A little bit like Dad said to me once, sounds like being in the Navy because he was in the Royal Navy at the end of World War II. And I said, yeah, it's a little bit like that. You know, you drink beer, you chase girls around, you, and you ride around, you sleep in like a little coffin-type bunk thing, and you roll around together at all hours a day a night, and night, you're working all the time. And I think that the difference is is you you go back and you have to do it again and again and again and again. Uh, in the pop world, you can get off a plane in this era uh, with social media and all the rest of it, and you have followers uh, and you get off a of plane and, you, and you're a sensation Someone when you walk on stage. Back when we were doing it, it wasn't like that. You had to go and do it the hard way. There wasn't any other way to do it.
3: In the next episode, In Excess start the 90s as one of the most popular bands on the planet, headlining Wembley Stadium and topping charts... But that success would prove difficult to maintain as the world's music tastes changed. They
2: did not deserve to have music taken away from them. And uh, and I just thought, you know, it was very brave of them to continue on. And, and they had to keep giving that music to the people because well, that's what Michael would have done.
3: You'll hear how their master plan for a female singer from a reality TV show didn't go to plan.
6: Look, we all wanted it to be a girl. We uh, already had the name of the album called Switch. It was meant to be Switch to a Girl. She wasn't there.
3: Plus why In Excess remain as wildly popular a decade after they stopped touring. And where things are at 25 years after Michael's tragic death. Behind the hits, Michael Hutchins' In Excess was hosted by Kat Lynch. It was written by Cameron Adams, audio production by Dom Evans and produced by Georgie Page. If you need to speak to someone about any of the topics covered in this episode, call Lifeline 24-7 on 13 11 14. Listener.